Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of the books Live from the Cafe and A Moment in the Sun. The world of poetry, words, phrases, stanzas, lines sometimes thrown out, other times crafted meticulously. There are as many different styles as there are poets. Today, fellow Brown Posey member Stephen May joins us. He is the author of Roadman, a volume of works that delve into the personal, the spiritual, and other subjects as well. Stephen, welcome aboard. Hey, thanks, Tori, for having me, man. Well, first, we've got to start Roadman. Uh, where did that name come from? And as you say in these early poems, you are Roadman. How, does that, how did that all start? Uh, interesting question, and it's one that I, I get a, a lot of. Uh, when I was at Penn State University, uh, my second degree was in theology. My first one was uh, creative writing and literature. And when I was in the stacks at the library, I came across this very small, old, worn, unassuming book. And uh, it was on Native American shamanism. And one of the terms that jumped out at me was a slang term for a Native American peyote shaman. And that term was a roadman. And the reason why they called the shaman the roadman was because he took you down a different road of consciousness in order to heal you from the inside out. And basically, that's what I want my poetry to do. I want to take you down a different road of consciousness in order to enlighten you, to enable you. Mm -hmm. Now, how much of your, I mean, how much of Roadman is you, or is this like, is this the Roadman that you've sort of created within yourself? How much of it is me? I mean, that's pretty much that's pretty much all me. I mean, I, I'm a multifaceted guy, man. Um, I I write in various genres, from fantasy to uh, contemporary fiction. Uh, but the poetry and the prose has always been my steadfast ever since. I, I think my first poem I wrote was when I was five years old in hand paint. But um, oh, wow. you know, I, and I guess. I don't know if this goes along with your question, you know, how much of it is me, but a lot of the times, and a lot of it in Roadman, except for uh, several pieces, I don't really even remember writing it. It's a form of automatic writing. And um, I have to go mm-hmm. back sometimes, maybe a couple of days later and even see what I wrote and I'll clean it up and uh, refine it. But for the most part, you know, I'm on my own trip, man. You know, when I sit down and actually just let my head go, uh, I don't. I have no idea what I'm writing. That answers the next question for me: was how much of a conscious effort is it? Um, 
when I mean I, I primarily write fiction, but I was also a songwriter for a long time. And for me, a lot of the time, it's it's a similar thing. It's like I have this just this sort of spark of an idea, and I'll just start writing. Do you? I mean, you obviously don't know consciously, but do you consider it like a trance or a meditation, or, or how, is there any way really to define it? I. I look at writing primarily uh, verse very intimately and seriously. Uh, to me, the mm-hmm. power of the word um, goes back eons. Uh, the first languages that have ever been written, whether it's Gilgamesh or Socrates or the Iliad, has all been written in verse. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was most important. The inspiration and the power of the word, um, I think, has lost a lot of its meat, if you will. It's come down to skin and bones, and, and Shakespeare always kind of disgusted me, and I've taken so many Shakespeare classes, and, uh, you know, the ballads and the prettiness of it all, for me, uh, painted the depth that verse can bring you. It's very therapeutic. Uh, one of the things that I would love to be able to teach uh, someday would be how therapeutic writing is. Poetry... Mm-hmm verse um, is very powerful. Mm-hmm. And yes, that's one thing that I've personally always known about writing is, is its therapeutic nature. And it's like, it allows you to sometimes kind of dig inside yourself a little bit and touch things that you normally couldn't talking to someone, you know, yeah, it, even, yeah, even it's to very, yourself. It yeah, it is trance-like for me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and it is meditative as well. And Roadman, uh, one of the things that I like about Roadman is it, it is supposed to be trance-like, and it's supposed to flow. It's a style that I've I've been I've been working on Roadman literally for decades, and it's morphed as most written works are over the years. And uh, it's supposed to be read like a book. It has a beginning, and it has a middle, and it has an end. And uh, just like any journey, um, it has its ups and downs. And um, I have my black and white photography in it that are actually supposed to be used as chapter breaks. So that's kind of a, I think, an interesting twist. Yeah, some of these are really very interesting. Like um, it's it's a little it's a it's into the book a little bit, but the bridge there's like there's the symbolism of the bridge. It's like have we crossed it or are we about to kind of thing? But I found that fascinating. It was, and it was exactly. And um, I think one thing that I'm seeing, um, actually I need to ask about the, the shamanism uh, factor. Um, I am not native American myself, but um, from my own reading and from being part of the pagan community, as I was down in the York area for in, in the mid state of PA for a number of years, um, a shaman sometimes is the one who can can sort of get out and to find out what is wrong with a community or what can be done to help a community and that sort of thing. And and that is almost like a higher, there's another state of consciousness, but it's sort of, I don't know how difficult it is to get to. I've never felt for myself that when I've meditated or done any of my own work that you can't just go there. You kind of have to let yourself Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I got you, man. I mean, that's uh, uh, shamanism can can take so many forms. I mean, you you can have 
you can have uh, Asian shamans, Buddhist shamans, and, and, you know, I guess to go along with what you were saying, and I'm just thinking about it right now, you know, when you go there and you come back, it's much like, you know, in Mahayana Buddhism, it's like the Buddhist reaches that, that zenith, that, that beautiful spot where you understand so many things and you can either stay there or you can come back Mm -hmm. and you can help others explore the road there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think that goes along with what you're saying. I look at some of the, some of the poems, some of the early ones, if we start looking into the book here, uh, you know, walk softly, you know, walk softly in the wintertime when the snow is at your feet. It's, it's almost like a walking meditation and it's like, yeah. you're not even, yeah. do not feel the cold, but you're there. And that, that's so, it's like, you just read it and it's like, this is a walking meditation. I've done this and I didn't even know. I can get kind of far out, man. <laughs> I, Hey, there's, I think as far out as we can go, it's a good thing because it just, it, it, it goes in here. It's like you're saying, our, our words may be, have lost some of the shine or lost some of the sharpness and maybe that's commercial fiction maybe that's just the way the words are being used but um, and the thing was that, that I'm not much of a poet myself I don't do very much of that but um, being around others who do and getting the chance to uh, to see some to listen to some some very recently um, just reminds me that this is an art in itself and it is a different one and it's um, as I said at the beginning, there are as many styles as there are the poets, it seems. Do you, do you have a definable style, do you think? Because I, I see different ones. I see different influences. Yeah, Tori, I've been in, – in my classes uh, for my MSA program at SNHU, we were asked to describe that. Do you have a personal mm-hmm. style? And right. I don't know, man. I, I honestly don't really know. I mean, and and to be frank, there were very few poets that I've really ever read. I mean, I have my favorites. I mean, Jack Kerouac was one of the, my all-time muses. Uh, all the beats, Ginsburg, Burroughs, Bukowski, um, mm-hmm. all their works um, I loved. But do I have a style that I have? I've, I've told I've been told by people that sometimes they see Kerouac in my style. They sometimes see Ginsburg, which is a flattery all into itself. But honestly, man, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't really know. Uh, I I can't. Maybe somebody else can answer that question. I can't. Yeah. Well, I could say there is some Kerouac, perhaps. I just. Um, I, I think there is that because there is a sort of there is a meter to a lot of the things you say, but and there's and it's like the other thing too is that the words, as office they sometimes go, they are there is that meaning in it. And I look at some of these, for example, um, even just the brief ones like meditation five. Um, I have found a domain of peace. Please accept my lethargy in dark suede craziness. <laughs> uh, I'm, I love that. I'm, I'm not just saying that either. I'm like. You There's don't a secret reference anymore. to Jim Morrison in that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I <laughs> and it's funny too, just just listening to American Prayer not that long ago. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, man. That's my favorite. That's my favorite. I love Doors. My favorite. Uh, my favorite uh, band and American Prayer. I used to fall asleep to it, so I could pretty much almost recite every line in that 
album. <laughs> and that was, and it was just something that, uh, that just came back to me because I was listening to it very recently and I was just thinking, Oh, you know, and um, yeah, there's a little of that. I definitely want to ask a little more about some of these as we go. Now you have given me uh, as we go along here, um, of this, this number of, of poems here in Roadman. Um, I do have to ask about um, how, with all of the work you've done over the years to put this together, or, or just, to, just to, to write what you have done, how difficult was it to assemble these for Roadman, or for the book itself? The original manuscript for Roadman um, was quite long. I think it was like 200 pages. And uh, mm-hmm. when it came down to my editor at Sunbury, Larry, who you know, um, was like, uh, you need to uh, cut this back. And I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I probably do. So when that process began, that's really when I began to form the beginning and the middle and the end. And a lot of it I have what I call outtakes, and I have documents for Roadman uh, called Roadman Outtakes. And actually a lot of those are going to go into future uh, Roadman, what I call the Roadman Collection. Um, and it's mm-hmm. going to be more than just one. Um, the second one I have coming out, I believe, in the next couple months. And there's actually a third one and a fourth one. And um, they're all going to be stories in and of themselves. And I think one thing I'd like to, I'd like to push here is when it does come to my work, there is a lot of thought and orchestration going into it. I mean, I don't just throw it together. Uh, the poems, one has to follow another one directly. There's a reason why one follows another one. Um, it's not frivolously thrown together like a bag of bones. And um, mm-hmm. whereas Roadman is the beginning of the Roadman collection, and it's the first journey, it's the first road uh, that the reader and the audience is going on. And then coming in, in and, and the last poem in Roadman is going to connect to the first poem in the next book and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, leads me into the next um, part of it. You, we, before we went on the air, you were talking a little bit about uh, your upbringing. Um, now, uh, you live in York, Pennsylvania, where I used to for a number of years, but uh, you, have, um, you have a very background and you've moved about. Tell us a little about your upbringing. And uh, as you say, you started, your first poem was in handpaint. I, I, I'm fascinated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shut up, you crazy feline. Sorry, I have hmm? cats. Uh, uh, my, uh, so do I. I got, <laughs> I got two cats for my wife when I was in a, a drunken stupor at a pet store. So I came back with uh, two cats. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, transient. Yeah, um, I was born in York. Um, two days later, uh, my mother and I flew to Germany to meet my father. And my father actually was a German immigrant who came over after the war when he was 16. And uh, he grew up in Wisconsin, and there's actually a large Native American community in, in Wisconsin that I got to meet over the years of visiting. But um, I lived in Augsburg, Germany, in Bavaria for a number of years, and uh, too young to remember. 
but I was baptized at one of Martin Luther's uh, cathedrals, and I have some crazy pictures of that, I tell you. But uh, after uh, wow. about two, three years, I uh, we moved back to um, the States, and uh, my, my mother's family was from York, and one of the old names in York is the Mao family, and my grandmother's. Mm-hmm. My grandmother was Margaret E. Mao, and she was the woman who started the first home for the cerebral palsy here and for people with cerebral palsy here in Europe. So, yeah, um, I try to get out of this town over the years as much as possible, really. It's like a black hole. It just always, you're just, man, if, you were, if you're a townie, it will always suck you back. I've, mm-hmm. I, I went off to Penn State, and after I graduated in 94, I moved to Pittsburgh, which I loved Pittsburgh, and I attended Pitt there for a while. I loved their writing curriculum there. That was cut short. I moved back to York because of my father having heart surgery. After that, Mm -hmm. I moved to Bridgeton, Maine. I lived in Bridgeton, Maine for a summer. After that, I moved to Ocean City for a summer, Uh, bartended there. That was my first experience uh, bartending. I bartended for about 25 years. After that, I moved Mm -hmm. uh, back to York again. After that, I moved to New York City until 9-11 happened. And nine eleven, mm-hmm. uh, well, that brought me back to York again, and here I am. Mm-hmm. And uh, you had uh, what were, you had said that you did uh, creative writing as a major, but you had another major as well, I think, at Penn State. Yeah, Penn State. Uh, I got a degree in theology, with a focus mm-hmm. on early Christianity and Native American shamanism. Mm-hmm. Now, your first poem was at age five. That leads me to wonder, um, there's a consciousness there. Was it uh, from what your family was reading, what they were reading to you? Uh, what do you remember about that? I was, I think I was like, it was preschool. Sister Stephanie uh, was her name, and she used to give me these, I don't know, Kids back then, I don't know if they still do it now, they were given big brown sheets of paper and just a bunch of finger mm-hmm. paint. Go to town, man. <laughs> do whatever you want with it. So I still have that. I still have that rolled up sheet down there in the basement somewhere. And it's all reds and oranges and some greens and browns. And as the story goes, apparently a sister, Stephanie, said, so what is that? And I said, uh, it's the animals and the animals are running from the fire because the fire burns and the animals run from the fire. Wow. And so she wrote it down in the corner and she says, and she wrote it in verse because apparently that's how I said it. So, you know, it's, it's a very, obviously it's from like a three or four year old, but um, I don't know, take it for what it's worth. That's pretty damn profound for a kid that young. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I told you, man, far out. Certainly seems that way. How about your folks? What what kind of things did they read? I've always found that that the reading, I know with with my mom especially, but also my older siblings, that was a heavy influence on me. How was it for you? No. <laughs> no. Okay. No, not at all. I mean, <laughs> I, I you know, I love my parents, you know, God rest their souls, but I, you know, I, I can't really say they were overly supportive, and they weren't really unsupportive either. 
You know, my father mm-hmm. was an was a, an electrical engineer for Northrop Grumman, and he wanted me to mm-hmm. be mathematical and science oriented. And and uh, my grandfather on my mom's side wanted me to get wanted me to go to Gettysburg Seminary. Well, you know, I'm not pious mm-hmm. enough to go to Gettysburg Seminary, so I got a degree in theology instead. But as far as, you know, I really didn't have anybody pushing me in that direction. And that was all me, man. Um, I still look back at that and say, you know, I wonder if it, if it, if it would have been any different, if I would have had that support group, if I would have made my way more quickly. I, I don't know, but no, simply put, no. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. It's different with each person. Um, I certainly didn't. I gravitated only to certain things that that my brothers and sister read. I my mom was a huge reader of mysteries, and they never really appealed that much to me. But I understood. I I unconsciously understood what mom loved about them, and I was like, well, that's cool. It's not really my thing. I'll be over here reading Tolkien. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, I love Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien, the first books I started to read were fantasy. Uh, mm-hmm. Not too many people know that uh, I was born with one leg shorter than the other. And um, when I was 11, I went into Alfred I. DuPont Institute for Children in Delaware for an experimental leg lengthening operation. And mm-hmm. DuPont Institute today is a fantastic facility for kids. But when I was there, it was about as medieval as you could get. And so I fell mm-hmm. back on fantasy to read fantasy and Tolkien uh, and the Grimm Brother tales were the first things I really began to read. I'm glad you brought up Tolkien. That's awesome. Well, I read The Hobbit when I was nine. I was given the gift. I was given the gift of the book when I was nine years old. And I didn't fully understand it as a nine-year-old, but I was intrigued. And then I basically uh, borrowed Lord of the Rings from my brother, and uh, <laughs> he eventually got him back. Right on. I I just remember diving into that, and suddenly there was this world that, um, outside my small town in Vermont, it was like, wow, there's something else out here, and this is fascinating. And uh, that that was really a start for me, too. Yeah, I have a Tolkien library down in my office, and most of them are hardbacks that I either founded uh, antique bookstores or uh, anywhere for that matter. But, yeah, I have I have a Tolkien library. That's amazing. And those things, obviously, with some of the building blocks, what, el- what else did you read? I'm just, I'm just curious to find out. What else did I read? I don't know, man. Um Jeez, and see, it's, I sound so, I sound so shallow and empty saying 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 this, but yeah, I I didn't really read a lot. <laughs> I really didn't. I mean, over the years, I I I came across um, a little bit of horror. I, I didn't really read a lot of horror, but I did love British author Brian Lumley's Necroscope series. Uh, I loved mm-hmm. his British linguistics. Um. I voluntarily I did read Lumley. I read um Piers Anthony mm-hmm. a little bit, but you know that seemed too commercial for me. But I did try to right. read a little bit of his books. Uh mm-hmm. again, I got really into uh the beat poets and the beat writers. So, you know, uh, a lot of Albert Camus, some Kafka. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. 
I was introduced to those uh, in Penn State, which is such a it's such a classical curriculum there. But uh, it turned me on to some of those writers that I just I, I really did voluntarily search them out and read them. Mm-hmm. There is um, a sort of roundedness that I recall when I was in public school in high school. I, I was fortunate to go to a pretty tough academically high school uh, in Vermont, and which is the reason I just barely got out of it. But I remember getting that sort of, you know, my, my literature classes, my writing classes gave me that opportunity to read some things that I probably wouldn't have even looked at until I had to read them. And the same thing happened for me in college. And it, it sort of, I guess it sort of it gave me a few edges as well. But um, in terms of Kerouac, and you mentioned Charles Bukowski, who I also, both of them I admire, there's there's something, when did you feel like you started to, I know you, your first poem was when you were real little, but when did you really gravitate toward writing and, and, and poetry as the thing? High school. Mm-hmm. I uh, realized thanks to my guidance counselor, I do remember that visit, one of many, I might say, that (laughs) paging through my notebooks, uh, she said, you seem to be dabbling more in your margins than you are taking notes. And, um, and she, and she was right. Um, During class, I would write poetry in the margins, something would come to mind or, my mind would just go off wandering. Uh, I guess today you could probably call that ADHD, but it wasn't just like I was doing something. Again, the word frivolously comes to mind. I was doing something else, but it was constructive. It was uh, purposeful. And yeah, man, I mean, I, I even in college, I'd go back and i look, I wasn't just doodling. You know, I was writing down things that, that came to my mind and it's like, to this day, it's like if I don't write it down somewhere, whether it's in a notebook margin or on a wet bar napkin or on my hand, if I don't write it down, I'll forget it. And mm-hmm. uh, so does that answer your question or did I get lost again? No, that's, that says everything. And it, it, okay. and it also leans into, it leans into how you do it. It's, um, um, I have to do the same thing for the most part. I have to I have to write something down, and I've gotten to a point where if I forget an idea, I'm of the mindset that it will come back, and hopefully it will come back better. Man, I wish I could do. I that. don't know if that. Well, I, it's I I don't when I lose an idea, I, I I used to kick myself for it, and then I would be like, okay, it'll come back. And hopefully it'll be in a better state. And it's not, it wasn't meant to stay with me. It wasn't something I needed to pursue. And that was hard for me too, because it was like, okay, got to let that one go. It's okay. You know, and maybe something better. Actually, um, we were talking earlier as well about, uh, about Jim Morrison. And someone just said this to me the other day that there's, and it might've been you. It was, I, I, I can't remember because we had a chat not too long ago about there was a poet, who was trying to be a rock star and, and he'd become a rock star, but he really wanted to be a poet. And he put so much of that into, into, into his work. Uh, are you referring to um, Jim Morrison was a rock star who wanted to be a poet? I'm the poet. I can't, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. One or the other, and I cannot remember. Okay. Yeah, I think that was me. Um, All right, yeah. But there's there was one there because it was like there was so much and and my brothers listened to the Doors and as as a small child I remember I remember I remember more of the Rolling Stones and the Beatles but I do remember that and um, there was another one and it's sort of like he had sort of the beat poet irreverence to him and there was but and you've obviously made more of a study of him than me there's something deeper there. Right on, man. And how about um, actually? And that's the reason I wanted to bring up. I brought that up because in Roadman we have this slightly longer work called American Standard. That <laughs> one really just that one just goes into a few pages of just work, and uh, I see the different lines of. There's there's a little of him there because you you know it begins talking about the desert and talking about the things that and it, it took me back to that and it took me back to um, uh, Morrison saying some of the things that he did about like what he saw when he you know what he saw on the road uh, when he was a child Indian Indian what did you die for that sort of thing American Standard uh, that I wrote that uh, my first year at Penn State and. That that was one of my first real um, lengthy rants, uh, and there's a lot of different references and you know multifaceted, multi-level, and all kinds of ways. The, the Mad King in Dover refers to Shakespeare and King mm-hmm. Lear, and, and but that was the very first poem I ever got published. And thank, thanks to uh, Professor Morgan Gibson, who uh, I dedicate um, some of that book to, he referred mm-hmm. me to a beatnik magazine in Japan called, then it was called the Blue Jacket, now it's called the Blue Beat Jacket. And uh, Yusuke Kaida, who is a, a, now a, a friend of mine, where we pen each other every now and then, he, uh, he stopped the presses for that issue just to put in American Standard, and it came in last. And, and the issue that he sent me, I got a free copy of it, and I have it framed downstairs. But American Standard's a—it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's a blast of Americana. And one of the things that I always have to tell people whenever I do read it, because anybody that knows my work always wants me to read it when I'm out, is that you know how did you get that? name American Standard and I said honestly I was at a bar and the title for that piece of work I just could not come up with a title I had to take a piss Mm -hmm. and I was into the bathroom and I looked down and there the words were right in in front of me on porcelain American Standard wow and I'm (laughs) like you know what that says it all right there, man. That poem is all a big critique and a bashing of contemporary Americana and government and social mores and social norms and how it's all just gone down the shitter. And there it was, American Standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's some, and, it, and it's like that. It, and it's like that title. It's like it comes from the strangest places, doesn't it? No doubt, man. Sometimes it just jumps out at you, and that's what I'm saying. Like, if I don't write it down, I'll forget it, you know. 
I haphazardly have lost literary children down the commode so many times. It, it makes me ill to think of some of the great things I could have written if only I would have just had a pen or a piece of chalk or something on me. Hey, I can't go back and remember stuff like you can. Well, I just I don't remember everything. I just remember just enough of what there was, and then it's like, oh, okay, that. And then it's like it might just be a few words, maybe just a couple of lines, and then it's like, oh, okay, I think I remember where I was going. And maybe I've got it, maybe I don't. But uh, I'm, I'm thankful, I guess, for that little bit. We are speaking with Stephen May, author of Roadman on the Brown Posey Press Show. I'm Tori Gates, your host. And um, a question that you, or rather a request that you had put to me, Stephen, was to ask uh, about the poem or the piece, Walking Through Worlds. Tell me about the specialness of that one. Yeah, that's that's one of my one of my all-time favorites that I've uh, and the reason being is because that one I really did consciously work on. Um mm-hmm. I mean, I worked on the beats to every stanza. I worked on the number count for every line. The rhyme scheme I worked on it. I'm talking about working on it. I'm talking about months. And uh, I was mm-hmm. obsessed with that piece. Uh, and and here's a little tidbit that I, I don't really tell too many people. Please, and that is that should. if you, if you um, add up the numbers to every line and then add up those numbers, you get how old I was when I wrote it. But that's something that nobody would really know. Nobody's ever going to study my work to that depth. But that's just one of those little idiosyncratic clues that I like to throw out there to uh, people that ask. But besides that, um, it is, it, it is, that was one of my really um, intricate works, first intricate works that I seriously dabbled with and played with and tinkered with to get it to a level um, that could be appreciated in so many ways, or at least I hope to be appreciated in so many ways. And also, it's the gateway poem to my next book. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you have gifted me with a volume called Darker Gifts. This is a separate. This is a separate volume, if I am right. Yeah, that's book two of the Roadman Collection. Okay, let's talk a little about that because. Um, I wanted to ask about the next steps for Roadman, and I am seeing uh, in this. It's it seems like it seems like Roadman not so much has found the end of one road and gone on to another. Does this mark a symbolic turn for Roadman? What does Darker Gifts uh, represent um, for you, and and for what the readers will see? Well, I always look at. Uh people's lives or life itself as um, choosing different roads or sometimes being thrust upon a different road Uh, Mm -hmm. and how you navigate that road um, is really uh, up to you, you know, how you react to it. Darker Gifts um, really was a road that was thrust upon me uh, with the death, the back-to-back-to-back deaths of first my father, finding him dead in the middle of the night, 
and then four months later, my mother, and then months later, my German grandmother, who I ended up taking care of. Um, I'm an only child, so I'm the last of my line. So, you know, for years I've been taking care of my parents, my father having heart problems. So when we all thought my mother was going to pass away first, well, she didn't. He did. And um, mm-hmm. so Darker Gifts was my response to this road that was thrust upon me. And it's uh, it's a dark road. You know, the, the book itself, uh, I guess, on the surface can be considered a bit macabre, uh, mm-hmm. a taste of morbidity as there are black and white photographs of uh, my dead family. But that, mm-hmm. that's been done. That's been done so many years and decades before people would take pictures in remembrance of their dead families. Uh, some people mm-hmm. today kind of frown upon that, but uh, I don't. I look at it as honoring them. But Darker Gifts um, is, is, is another journey. It's another road. And it is to be read just like a story. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. It has to do with dealing with loss. It has to do with death, not just as a termination, if you will, a finality, but death also, as you progress through the book, as a phoenix, if you will, rising from ashes. Death is also a form of transformation. It's a form of mm-hmm. rising. And... Mm-hmm. Um, that's where you end with darker gifts at the very end. The work actually begins to brighten. Mm. So, yes, it's uh, coming out of the dark. And um, so taking a look at uh, you, as you said earlier, Roadman is going to be going through a number of volumes in the, in, in the future. And, and you said you have three or four, or do you have more than that, do you think? At the moment, I have um, the third volume, book three of the Roadman collection is called Sundog. And uh, the final poem in Darker Gifts lends to just that, the brightening, the coming out of the ditch, the clawing your way out of the hole and laying basically your face into a new sunshine onto a new road. And Sundog is actually going to be very much the opposite of darker gifts. You know, you go through the darkness and you come out with a new gifts of insight, which is what darker gifts really means. And Sundog is going to be very much more uh, lighthearted, fun, uh, in-depth, I'd like to say, too. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a deep-minded person, uh, when I go into that trance-like state, I guess you could say. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, Mm -hmm. um, the fourth book that I really have in in mind, and and that's still all speculative, and um, uh, it's called Dreamcatcher. So there's that Native Mm -hmm. American thread still going through to Dreamcatcher. Yeah, I got like, I uh, I got a couple of them in my head, man. That is cool. Well, as uh, we see the future of Roadman and what you're going to be doing, um, kind of leads me now to um, 
we talked about it briefly earlier, uh, sort of a look at what, what is happening in poetry today. Uh, now that I've had an opportunity to sort of get myself uh, acquainted with you, and I made a recent appearance in York to get to listen to some different poets, and it was the first time in a while that I had done that. And I could see the different styles, and um, you hear a lot about poetry slam and the freestyle. There's almost an extension to some, like like in the romantic period of writing, there is that emotional thing, we must get this down now, or we must get this out now. I don't know how much of a connection there is. Um, is there any trend or anything in poetry today that you're seeing that either intrigues you or interests you or maybe doesn't? I'm, I'm, you're closer to that than me. Yeah, the poetry scene here in York, uh, albeit the art scene overall, uh, is the one thing that does impress me about this town. There are a lot of great writers that I've met. I, I've, I've read all over town and, and Hanover and Lancaster and, and so forth. But uh, like uh, one of my favorite uh, buddies of mine, poets, Dustin Nisfell, uh, he's a great um, yes. free reader. Like, I don't know how, and I've, I've, I've sat down with him many times and be like, dude, how do you remember all that? And, um, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, Dustin there's a lot of great. Hosted, you mean, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, you ahead. know, Dustin? Yes. Um, he hosted me for a book reading with my old, uh, my old duo a couple of years ago in York. He was fantastic. Have you heard of uh, Kenneth Vincent Walker? Heard of, not met. Yeah, he's a, he's a close friend of mine. We hang out from time to time. He reads out way more than I do. Uh, he's another one that can just get up there on stage and grab that microphone and just belt it out. Like, he's a jazz poet, and I love jazz, so I love going to see him read. Uh, I can't do that, man. I, I just Like I said, a lot of these works I write, I don't remember writing them. So I have and, to read yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, and it's like you were talking about Dustin. Dustin just has stuff. And um, and I he struck me from the first time I met him as just deep, and I really appreciated. I appreciated his openness because I mean I was doing something completely different. I was trying something completely on the other side. I was reading from at the time I was reading from A Moment in the Sun, which was came out a couple of years ago, and um, you know we were just you know doing some music under some of the readings and stuff and he was completely open to it even though i think other people were kind of like what is he doing but he was really great about it yeah i wanted i've asked him to uh, work with me i i dig his i dig his paintings and uh mm-hmm. i've i've uh, hit him up a couple times maybe i've worked with me on um maybe like uh dreamcatcher i would love to put his artwork you know maybe shake it up a little bit instead of my black and white photography uh, shake it up with some some other artists um, mm-hmm. artists work. Uh, one of my best friends, Mike Pop. Uh, Michael is one of the most gifted uh, musicians and painters I've I've ever met. I've known him since I was four years old. So I'm trying to get his gears going to do some work for Sundog for me, some painting for Sundog. But it's like pulling teeth with him. I love him the pieces, but man. If I can get some local painters and writers to uh, check out my work, read it, and you know what, whatever inspires you to paint something to, that, that goes along with that theme, go for it. And I would love to find uh, somebody to put on the cover with me. 
that's the kind of thing I have looked for with some of my writing because some of my writing has more of the graphic novel thing, partly because of the size of the work. Finding that person that will be inspired enough to say, oh, I can write something for this or I can draw something for this. And yeah, it's like pulling teeth, but eventually you would hope you find someone, but it's like you have ins with people like Dustin and these folks, so it's 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 a bit closer, I think. Right. Yeah. Um, now, I have to ask a couple of other things here. As we look uh, toward the future of Roadman and that sort of thing, um, you are also um, a part of an MFA program at Southern New Hampshire. And um, I know a little bit about the school because I'm from New England originally. Uh, what are you going for? And you had also indicated you wish to teach. Tell us about what you're doing right now and that sort of thing. Yeah, I uh, with the... With the passing of my parents, and, and there was no more having to, to worry about taking care of them, and I was left uh, basically for the first time, um, as guilty as I felt at the time, free to do what I really wanted to do. And I always wanted to teach uh, at the college level at, at some somewhere or another. I mean, my first, going back to Tolkien, if I quickly... I wanted to teach medieval studies and Renaissance history. <laughs> and uh, I was an English major, or I was a history major at Penn State before I transferred over to uh, English and journalism. But, uh, you know, mm-hmm. teaching history and medieval studies, that kind of, I was like, oh man, come on. I'd have to be like a, a grade, a, grade A student to really get hired at a college to do that. So um SNHU was my first uh new uh step in this fulfilling that dream again mm-hmm. and I you know I was online and I was researching accredited schools and um as far as uh, online formats go and and curriculums go the one that really stood out to me was Southern New Hampshire University and uh I read up on that and talked to a lot of their advisors, and um, I, I loved it. And I jumped in uh, starting last September into the first. It was into the master's program. And then uh, for once, I actually had good grades. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and they said, you know what? You might want to jump into the MFA program. Uh, you laugh, man. My grades sucked. But, you know, in, in postgraduate studies, perhaps it's the maturity level. Perhaps it's the fact that um, I'm more in tuned. I was just ready. My mind was ready to tackle it. And uh, they asked me if I would much rather jump into their Masters of Fine Arts program, which is a little bit more in-depth. Now, that's a lie. It's a lot more in-depth and a bit longer. But they said it would really offer me um, what it is I really wanted to do, and that is, A, still be a, a, a successful writer, and uh, also be a successful professor. Mm-hmm. Well, the road appears open for you now. At this point in time, where will we find Roadman? Where would we get to uh, hear some of the work and uh, perhaps get to meet you? Um, I don't know if you know, uh, Sunbury Press is re-releasing Roadman. So the copy that's coming out now is actually a re-release. I think it was 2011 when the first copy came out. So mm-hmm. when this comes out, um, and hopefully uh, when Darker Gifts comes out, I'm going to start hitting up a lot of the places around here. And if uh, 
Sunbury Press has any places that they would like me to um, go to, such as come up to Harrisburg, uh, I would love to read up there. And uh, uh, I've really been on hiatus with reading out, out in public lately just because of dealing with so many things that I've already mentioned that now I think it's time that I start um, flexing my bones again and getting out and reading. It can be anywhere, man. It can be anywhere. All right. Well, you have uh, really opened up a lot of doors, and you have really uh, given the readers an opportunity to get inside with Roadman. And, uh, well, it was news to me, but congrats on the re-release. And I look forward to getting deeper into Darker Gifts and your future work. I thank you very much, uh, Stephen May, for your time today. Hey, Tori, thanks a lot, man. You have been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show. I'm Tori Gates, your host. Look for my works live from the cafe and a moment in the sun, as well as the works of Stephen May and many other fascinating authors at brownposeypress.com. This is the Book Speak Network. (laughs) 